Hello everyone. It's time again for another episode of Humble Perspectives. This week I'll be reading chapter 21 of For Such a Time as This. As we moved into the second half of the 1980s decade, there continued to be that mixture of good experiences and difficult ones in that season of testing and ultimately of change. One of the particularly good moments was a wonderful transforming encounter between my son and I, one for which I am forever grateful. But there was all, were also weaknesses that God was continuing to expose in me until I became desperate for help. And God met me in a life-changing experience that healed an inner hole in my person, a hole which I had not realized fully was so critical. And so I begin chapter 21, titled, New Friends and Deep Change. Even during this season of testing in the community and in the church, there were many good moments. The fellowship shared among the members of our flock was rich and meaningful, and some who did not move from Minnesota were added to the group. I got to know some wonderful people from other flocks in the church, too. Also, some relationships were, that were to prove very significant later in my life began with several leaders outside of Lexington Covenant Church. I first remember beginning to get acquainted with Richard McAfee and Bill Livingston when I took several students from New Covenant Academy to Louisville Covenant Church's school in early 1985. Richard and Bill had moved from a church in Oklahoma City in 1984 in order to help Louisville Covenant through a difficult season following the loss of their senior pastor. These men were longtime friends of Paul Petrie and some other of the Lexington elders. In 1985, they began to come often to Lexington to join us in our elders meetings. Although they came mostly for personal strengthening, strengthening and support, their gifts also contributed to our lives and often to our deliberations in that time. I had no idea that the Lord would soon use Richard powerfully in my own life, nor did I have any thought that Bill would one day be one of my closest friends and for a season would give me personal pastoral oversight. I first remember meeting Dennis Cole during that school revival also, the school revival that took place in late 1984, which I've already talked about. I met him when we took students to Covenant Christian Church in Newport, Kentucky, where he was serving as an elder. In the coming years, Dennis was also was to become one of my best friends, and he is now the person I look to for personal accountability and personal pastoral oversight. In 1985, John Meadows opened a door, a hugely important door as it turned out, for me when he invited me to join him weekly in a time of fellowship and prayer with several pastors of other churches in Lexington. Billy Henderson, one of these pastors, has become one of my most faithful friends. Billy, when a student at the University of Kentucky in the late 1970s, along with some of his university friends, started a Bible study in a dorm. That Bible study grew and eventually became a recognized campus group, University Christian Fellowship. Several members decided to continue as a community of disciples after they graduated. Therefore, eventually, Billy and the others began Lexington Christian Fellowship, LCF, while they continued their outreach on the campus 
through University Christian Fellowship, which in short form is simply referred to as UCF. The more I got to know Billy, the more we found that we had similar hearts for the kingdom of God and for building community and for making disciples. Even though our backgrounds and experiences were significantly different, we had much in common in how we thought and in what we longed to see in the local church. A big difference between us is that Billy's gift to reach people, to draw them together, and to establish a community with those who are willing to embrace the same mission and values is far greater than mine. On the other hand, Billy often says he's drawn on me for theological confirmation about truths and practices he thought should be developed in their church. I've learned more from him than he from me over the years, though, I'm sure. In the summer of 1987, Billy asked me to teach one week of a 13-week Christian training school, CTS, that their church, LCF, was beginning. In that first CTS, I taught five sessions on the subject, servanthood. Those days together began to establish a strong connection between LCF, people, and me, ties that continue to bear fruit in my life and in my family's life to this day. I'll pause here with a note. Just a couple weeks ago, probably three weeks ago, I had the privilege of teaching on servanthood again in the CTS. Over these past 25 years or, or whatever, 26 years, uh, we've probably had that school 20 times or more, and I've had the privilege of being involved. What a significant thing that has been for me. Hopefully I sowed good for the people that were in it. Back to the book. In 1986, the Holy Spirit directed us to send Paul Petrie and his family, along with several other people, to plant a church in Brussels, Belgium. Paul continued on as the senior pastor of Lexington Covenant, but he gave John Meadows the responsibility to preside among the elders and to represent the elders' team to the church in Paul's absence. There were men with more obvious charismatic gifts than John. However, he had been an elder in the Lexington church longer than most of us, and he was probably the most pastoral among us when it came to listening and caring for people as individuals. Besides, a brother with a more charismatic gift and a more take-charge attitude might well ruffle feathers at a time when the church needed to be settled and healed. Not only was John respected and loved by the elders, but he also was clearly a conciliar leader. We were all committed to fellow following his lead since he represented Paul, but each of us was able to contribute meaningfully to the whole. John stayed in frequent contact with Paul by means of international phone calls. It was a gift to be able to have consistency in the overall direction of the church because Paul and John were communicating and because John understood Paul's heart. By the summer of 1987, it seemed to the elders in council with Paul that there needed to be a consistent voice in the pulpit on Sunday. Some of the elders traveled many weekends. Others had various gifts and ways of serving in addition to caring for their own flocks in the church, but were not as oriented toward preaching. It fell to me to be that voice, and I continued to serve in that role well into 1988. I presented a, title, a series titled Loving and Serving One Another in order to remind us and recall us to the attitudes and behaviors that Jesus said demonstrate that we are his disciples 
and that build God's people together in a Christian community. See John 13, 34 and 35 and 17, 20 to 23. I also presented a long series of expository, more or less, messages from the book of Ephesians, all except for two passages that were covered by two other elders on Sundays when I had to be away. It was clear by April 1988 that it was time for a more visionary leader to take the lead role among the elders. John had served faithfully and well through a difficult season in the church, during which people continued to leave, a time when we were also transitioning from the direct leadership of the founding elder Paul. Now it became clear that the time had come for Paul to turn the church over to another leader who could, we hoped, lead us into the future. Several of the brothers had been reading a good deal of the church growth literature that had been produced by people who had been influenced by Donald McGavran, well-known professor in Fuller Seminary's School of World Mission the acknowledged father of the church growth movement. Various ones of us read the works of Peter Wagner, Carl George, and others. Their writings stirred a great desire among us elders to be effective in evangelism and to see our church community grow. Wagner's close friend John Wimber had already been used to the Lord to bring a reviving among us. We had profited greatly from Wimber's emphasis on signs and wonders in evangelism and the church growth methodology seemed to some to be right up our alley. Even though people had continued to leave the church, there were still lofty hopes and expectations for growth in numbers and growth in influence in the city. One prophetic word even said there would be thousands in the church within a few years. It would appear that either the prophecy was wrong or that we did not follow the Spirit well enough for it to come to pass. It's also possible that we misinterpreted that word because we were only thinking about the church in terms of the little community that we call Covenant Church and not perceiving the church the way God intends it, the community of all believers in a locality. There were several people who came to the Lord even in our difficult days. Some, though, came to us ready to surrender to God rather than us going to them. Still, the loss of people far, far outnumbered the gains. My best estimate is that there were about 250 of us who reigned, remained in the church that spring, less than half the number that had been in the church when we had moved to Lexington in 1984. We certainly did not realize that more than a few of us who left, of those who had left, would become leaders in a number of churches around the city. I first became aware that this was happening about the time we began to think about a new leader in the future. At one of the Greater Lexington Ministerial Fellowship's monthly lunches, a Church of God pastor, upon discovering my affiliation, said, Your church has provided leaders for half the churches in this city. Although his was an overstatement, I discovered that there actually was some truth to his words. As I reflected on it, my perspective gradually began to change. We had identified with the discipleship movement, right? What do disciples do? Do they enter a permanent training relationship? No, of course not. Jesus calls us to make disciples who make disciples. In a tangible way, through the relationships in Covenant Church, God had produced disciples in spite of weaknesses and failings. God had directed us by the Spirit to send people out by the Spirit. And God also had used human mistakes and failures to make people uncomfortable, dissatisfied, and ready to move. In the Bible, the pattern's clear. Sometimes it was one who made disciples 
who moved on to make more disciples like Jesus did. In other times, the disciples were sent out to make disciples as Jesus had sent his, and as the church in Antioch sent Barnabas and Saul when the Spirit commanded them to. But the New Testament communities were not static. They were not simply enjoying a nice, placid life together. Theirs were communities in which things were happening. People were coming and going. In the Jerusalem church, God had used persecution to get the disciples moving out to make more disciples. The way Luke describes life in the first community of disciples in Jerusalem has stirred many of us to desire to be part of such communities. Important passages on that line are Acts 1, 13 and 14, Acts 2, 1 to 11, and 42 to 47, Acts 4, 23 to 36, Acts 5, 12 to 16. Who would want to leave such a nest, even to fulfill a larger calling? The nest being the way of life that's described in those passages from Acts, which I just listed. But the larger calling is described in Matthew 28, 18, 20, and Acts 1 to 8. That's the calling. Why, thousands from many nations had become new disciples and members of the community in Acts 2.41, Talk about a growing church. To be sure, Peter and John had experienced some suffering, but didn't God also miraculously deliver them from prison? Recorded in Acts 5.17-20. Then, following Stephen's martyrdom, great persecution was unleashed on that church and scattered the disciples not the apostles, the disciples, throughout Judea and Samaria. So much for the big church, right? So much for God's church. Wrong. Luke simply says, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Then Luke tells the amazing experiences of the deacon Philip who had gone to Samaria because of the persecution to illustrate the way of God. Luke was using this story to illustrate the way of God God used the distress of persecution to expand the reach of the gospel through disciples. See it in Acts 8. Then, in the next chapter, following the account of the conversion of Saul, the chief persecutor, Luke reveals the result of the disciples' obedience, encouraged as it was by persecution. He wrote, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up, and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit it multiplied, Acts 9.31. God also used difficult times to motivate his old covenant people. Because of famine, Jacob and his children moved to Egypt, where God had raised up Joseph. For many years, while Jacob's children lived in Egypt, they had a good life because Joseph had favor with Pharaoh. But eventually a king came to the throne who had not known Joseph, and their nest became increasingly uncomfortable until they were ready to leave Egypt. In fact, they were crying out to leave. In Exodus 19, God compares the way he delivered them from Egypt in order to fulfill the calling he had for them as bearing them on eagle wings. Exodus 19, 3-6 says, The Lord called to Moses out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. 
These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Before I go on, I want to note here that what God said through Moses to the people of Israel then is still valid today. If you were to read that in the Jewish translation, the Septuagint, you'd find that it's the same words that Peter uses in 1 Peter 2 to describe who we are as the people of God, as the spiritual house made of living stones with Jesus the cornerstone, who we are as a holy priesthood, who we are as, as a royal priesthood. Whereas then the family of God was made up of people, largely of people from one descendant or one ancestor, Abraham. Now, we who were not a people, not a people group, in Christ have become the people of God. Illustrating that God's way of expanding continues and it's worldwide. God motivated his people back then in Exodus to desire to move into the land formerly promised to their forefather Abraham by making their circumstances increasingly miserable. Likewise, God used the hardship of the wilderness to expose their unbelief and rebellion and to raise up a generation that would follow him into that promised land. In the wilderness, God not only protected and fed his people, but he also stirred up the nest to get them into the wilderness. Near the end of Moses' life, he sang a song summarizing the history of God's delivering and leading his people. In one part of that song, Moses picked up on the comparison of God's ways to an eagle's ways. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. He found him in a desert land and in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him, he cared for him, he kept him as the apple of his eye like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. The Lord alone guided him, speaking of Israel, his people, and no foreign God was with him or with God's people. Deuteronomy 32, 9 to 12. The sermon outline for Deuteronomy 32, 11, put together by the 19th century Scottish preacher James Orr, sets forth a clear application to the way God works like the eagle in our lives. This is the outline of his sermon. Introduction, the description is of a female eagle exciting her young ones and teaching them to fly, and afterwards guarding with greatest care lest the weak should receive harm. In this picture of the eagle's treatment of her young, note one, her aim, she aims at teaching them self-reliance. It's not God's wish that these people should go in leading strings. They must be trained to prompt, fearless, self-reliant action. This was an aim of the discipline of the wilderness. Our action is to be in a spirit of dependence, but is to be active, not passive dependence. Two, her method. The eagle stirs up her nest. She does not leave her brood to the ignoble ease they would perhaps prefer. So God rouses his people to action by making their place uneasy for them, by placing them in trying situations, by removing comforts, by the stimulus of necessity, by the sharp provocation of afflictions. He goads them to think, act, and put forth the powers that are in them. It is not for the good of Christians that they should have too much comfort. And then three, her case 
The experiment is not carried to the point of allowing her young to hurt themselves. She hovers over them, supports them on the tip of her wings. God tries us, but not beyond our strength. There's an outline worth preaching, I would say. Back to my writing. Although my own life circumstances have never been so dire as to be comparable to that of the people of God in Israel, still, I do, do know from personal experience that at various times in my journey, God has allowed the nest to get so uncomfortable that I begin to desire and seek change. Sometimes circumstances have stirred me to desire external change, such as the way the Lord used the division of our community and misunderstandings in my relationship with Jack Brombeck to help prepare me for the move to Lexington. Most often, unpleasant circumstances have stirred me to desire internal change. So, for example, God was doing, as for example, God was doing at this time when he was bringing my weaknesses and failings into the light. Soon, I would see that disillusionment, discouragement, and anger were motivating me to seek help. It is not my intent, nor do I have the ability to explain all the whys of my own journey, much less to explain the whys of the history of the servants of the Lord or of Covenant Church. Nor am I any more able than the Apostle Paul to accurately evaluate with assurance either my own life or the lives of others. Check out Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 4, 3-5. I do know, however, that in all things God was working to make good of all things, just as Scripture declares. Remember Romans 8.28, that familiar scripture. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good. To those who love God, to those who are, called, who are called according to his purpose. I didn't know that I was about to have a personal encounter with God that would change me. I also didn't know that there would soon be change in my responsibilities that was going to lead to a move for our family. Financially, our family was not as well off as we'd been in the last few years that we lived in Minneapolis. My salary from Covenant Church was about the same as my salary from the Servants of the Lord, and I had the added advantages of being able to deduct household expenses from my taxable income as a pastor. However, during the last years in Minneapolis, we had had six single adults sharing our household expense. Even though most of the time we had one extra adult sharing our home in Lexington, we were also paying for our children's education. Therefore, when it became clear in 1985 that our son Elijah needed dental braces badly for the proper development of his mouth, we had to find supplemental income. After due consideration, Elijah signed up to deliver the Lexington Herald-Leader, our local newspaper, in our immediate neighborhood early every morning. The route was in his name, but from the beginning I worked along with him. We kept that route for six years. Most of the time we had at least one additional route and for a period of time we had three routes. As we added, added routes, Patricia began to help us more and more regularly. The income, usually six to $800 per month, was in Elijah's name. But from the beginning, we all saw it as a way to serve our family. Therefore, Elijah took about $40 per month for his own use and from the paper route money, he paid for his own dental braces. We were also able to pay the children's school bill from that money. 
blessings came from our family, from this family effort. Elijah learned to work, to handle money, and to serve the family unselfishly. We had the privilege of working together regularly. The orthodontist was so impressed when he heard about Elijah's efforts to serve the family that he deducted one-third of the price from the final cost of the braces. The price we paid, though, was missed sleep and tired bodies. Our rising time was early, 4.30 in the morning, no matter what time we'd gone to bed the night before. We had the paper route while Elijah was in grades 7 through 12, a time of much rapid physical growth for a young person. He got to the point where he could go to sleep almost anywhere at any time. My night schedule could not be controlled well. I had to be available to serve individuals when their, when their schedules permitted, and I needed to participate in the meetings and activities of the church. For six years, I averaged between four and five hours of sleep per night. One thing did help us. With the three of us working together, we arranged for each to have one day a week to sleep a little later while the other took two took care of delivering papers. Although we did not plan this with any spiritual discipline in mind, it served as one, since it helped us to develop a willingness to work and sacrifice in doing God's will, and it offered us an unforeseen means to build the godly attribute of community spirit into our family life. There was another benefit that was not so pleasant. When I was tired, by the way, I had benefit there in quotes. There was another benefit that was not so pleasant. When I was tired, which was most of the time, my weaknesses became more apparent, especially impatience and irritability. Sadly, it was my family who took the brunt of these negative attitudes and the bad behavior that manifested accordingly. I also think the tiredness helped, helped, <laughs> quotes, a deeper problem to be revealed. My tendency to flare up quickly in anger began to manifest more and more frequently. My first response to situations was often hardness and harshness. Although I did not like the way I behaved, recognizing that I could not consistently control my behavior did lead me to want change, even though I felt helpless to change. Thankfully, through the years, Patricia and I had sought to take responsibility for our failures in our relationships and to seek forgiveness quickly. We had made a habit of doing so with our children as well as with each other. The fact that we kept short accounts made a major difference. My wife and children were gracious to offer frequent and abundant pardon. Still, my wrong behavior produced consequences in them, such things as feeling the need to steel themselves against harsh words and to withdraw into themselves in the face of contention and confrontation. Some good things took place, of course, even in this tough season. One of the greatest was an encounter Elijah and I had with each other when he was 15, during the spring of his freshman year of high school. Not only had I been irritable, impatient, and often angry, but quite often Elijah had been testing the limits, rather mildly in comparison to many, from age 13 to 15. I often overreacted to his attitudes and actions. I tended to see much more rebellion than was actually there because all too often I read into his behavior and attitudes my own rebelliousness during my youth. We had had some really tough moments in that season. That school year, his sophomore year, we had some particularly bad arguments over his lackluster effort in algebra. In one rather ugly encounter, I attacked him verbally and really cut him down. After he left the room, 
in guilt and frustration and helplessness. I cried out, Oh God, I can't even be a good father without your help. This, of course, exposed a core issue. I was trying to do right without God's help. I broke in repentance before God. As what was my custom after screwing up, I soon went to Elijah and asked his forgiveness. I made clear that I was serious about his need to change his approach to algebra, but I also told him that my attitude, my judgments of his motives, my words, and my demeanor were inexcusable. I told him that I deeply desired his forgiveness. Elijah graciously forgave me and continued to love me. Keeping short accounts with one another and confessing our own sins and seeking and giving forgiveness were big keys in our relationship. A few days afterward, Elijah and I went to Hardy's restaurant for a Coke and a talk about these things. I was in a place of brokenness and dependence before God, who met us on that day at Hardy's. I found myself scribbling on a napkin. I drew a line with an X on either side of it. The X's represented Elijah and me, while the line was the problem between us. I said, son, we've had these problems between us. We're both trying to deal with the problems. But as we slug away at the problems, we're slugging through the problems and beating each other up. From now on, I drew a circle around the X representing me, drew a line representing a curved arrow around the line of the problems between us to a point beside the X that represented him. I went on to say, I am your side, on your side. Let's attack the problems together. Immediately, tears filled both of our eyes. We were caught up in a profound God moment, a moment of wonderful intimacy, peace, and hope. From that time forward, our relationship changed. We still had issues from time to time, but almost as soon as an argument would begin, one or both would come around to the other side, and we would try to resolve the issue together and not allow it to come between us. The next year, I homeschooled Elijah. I couldn't teach him much about mechanics or farming or woodworking or sports or hunting or fishing, all the things that I think about men teaching their sons. But I could help him build the conscious foundation of a biblical perspective on life and history. I could offer him what I knew, and I did my best to do so. Within two months, I realized that we were no longer simply a father and son. We had become the best of friends as well. Previously, I had understood something about the love of the father for his son, and I had understood something about the authority and submission that should characterize the relationship but I had not realized that it was desirable or even possible for a father and son to be friends as well. But it happened, and through the next years, Elijah continued to be one of my truest friends. Over the next few months, we began to talk about how we could serve the Lord together in the years ahead of us. Would that all the things I'd been messing up would have been fixed like that. By late, late, 18, late 1988, I knew I was in trouble and that I was doing damage to our family. It's a good thing to be able to see one's weaknesses and failings even when it feels terrible, if that seeing leads to repentance and change. 
In this case, I despised what I was doing, but I didn't seem able to change. I knew it was cowardly at best to take out anger on my family. I was not blowing up at my pastor, John Meadows. I was not taking it out on men who could hit back. I was taking it out on those who loved me and depended on me most. What business did I have pastoring and teaching and leading God's people when I was acting so badly so often? And yet, what was I to do? I did not call myself to those ministries. God did, and He wasn't releasing me. Gradually, I became aware that some of my anger had roots in the disappointments of the 1980s. When I was completely honest with myself, I had to admit that my quick temper had been a weakness for a long time. It was my typical response to adversity. Fear of my parents, some of it godly fear, some self-protective fear, had kept me from lashing out at them. But I had fairly often unleashed it on my younger sisters when they provoked me. However, anger had begun to manifest more often during the time that the servants experienced division. The time when my idealism and grand expectations about the kingdom and community were first challenged seriously. Disappointment grew still more as I began to comprehend more fully the depth of the problems in Covenant Church, especially as the unsettledness of fence and loss of people continued on from month to month and year to year. I learned that whether people left the church offended or were sent out in mission, it was still a loss. Not only were there fewer of us at meetings, but there were also fewer people to do the work. And for that matter, there were less finances to use in the work, too. And at some point, it was clear that unless things turned around, there would be a loss in our personal income as well. Since Bible college days, it had not been my desire to be paid for working in the church, but now I was dependent on it. Money was not nearly as big a factor in my anger as the disappointments, the illusions that had been shattered. I deeply longed to wholeheartedly seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and to know that God was the one who would provide for all the necessary things, and at the same time it was fearful. Still, now that I had a family to support, had a monthly house payment to make, and had grown accustomed to at least some degree of financial freedom, I wouldn't be honest if I were to think or say the possibility of a bleak financial future didn't matter. Yet it was a shameful thing in my mind to lack trust in God to be our provider. I talked about these things with John Meadows on occasion, and in some measure of desperation, I began to talk about them more often. His counsel and prayers made some difference, but I still was not breaking out of the pattern. Finally, John suggested that he and I meet with our mutual friend, Richard McAfee, <clears throat> who at that time was serving in Louisville. Richard had for a long time been effective in praying with people for healing from deep hurt. In fact, he had moved to Louisville to help the people out of the Covenant Church there deal with their pain and hurt after a pastor fell scandalously. Although I tended to be and still am cautious about the inner healing ministry in general, I knew Richard and I trusted him as a man of God who ministered in the Holy Spirit's power. Therefore I agreed. John set up a time in late April for Richard to meet with the two of us at our church's building in Lexington. I do not remember many details about that time with Richard and John. I do know that Richard asked me to share why I wanted prayer, which I did. I know he asked me some questions. 
And there may even have been more than one time of prayer while we were waiting before the Lord together. But one part of that ministry time I do remember. At some point, Richard began to ask about my memories from earlier times in my life. Richard asked me about my childhood and about my relationship with Dad. I remember that at some point while I was talking, Richard came over to the chair where I was sitting and put his arms around me and began to address directly the little boy I used to be, speaking to buried memories of times when I felt confused and hurt, specifically in my relationship with Dad. While Richard was praying, however, I heard another voice, the voice of the Heavenly Father, a tender voice, a loving voice. A delighted voice. The father's words were as plain as if they'd been audible, even his tone of voice. As I write, I hear him again, now in my memory, delightedly saying, I like you, boy. I wept at my father's simple affirmation, and something changed within me. I had understood from Scripture that God loved me, after all, He loves everyone. Hadn't he demonstrated his love by sending his son Jesus to rescue us by taking our sins and dying for us so that we could be forgiven? But this was different. My Heavenly Father not only loves me, he likes me. He delights in me as one of his children, his boy. And not just when I do the right thing and say the right words. My Father liked me even at a time when I was angry and venting all my loved ones, when I was acting like a brat so cowardly that my family had been receiving the brunt of my anger. Not those who could fight back, but those who were dependent on me, those who deserved and needed me to represent the Father's love to them. At this awful low point in my life, my Father liked me. He was not just putting up with me. He wasn't just using me. He wasn't just using my gift to, gifts to minister to others. In spite of how messed up I was, my father truly liked me. My father likes me. My father really, really loves me and delights in me. In a way similar to the way Elijah and I became friends, my father also wanted to be my friend. I write with tears today because this was not simply an experience I had nearly 30 years ago. I hear my father's delight again today, early on this Sunday morning, September 24th, 2017. I hear his delight even through yesterday. I struggled unsuccessfully for a few hours to overcome frustration and be patient when my wife was dealing with a vague, to me, dizziness, and kept needing my attention while I was trying to diligently work on this book. My father delights in me as his boy today, even though last evening, I struggle with frustration because of the slow, very slow service at the emergency room where I'd taken Patricia to get help. And I don't know if you can tell it or not, but the reality that my father likes me, it's still there, even as I read now, 74 years old, and I'm still my father's boy. Thank you, Lord. Mm. Certainly when I heard my father say, I like you, boy, he was expressing his affirmation for me as a person, but he was not saying, 
I like the way you've been acting out, boy. So in sense, some sense, there is a similarity to a Facebook-like, I suppose. Only what I heard in my very core of that day was far deeper, far, far deeper, and more personal and more caring in its tone and meaning than any like button can express because I heard his voice. I heard the tone of his voice. Those few words said everything that needed to be said. My father's like was much more than affirmation. It was a promise. His word said, there really is hope for you because you are mine. Was my father going to let me stay this way? Of course not. He's the father of all fathers. Because of his love, he has disciplined me and he is still disciplining me, not with harsh anger, but rather out of deep love for his 68-year-old, now 74-year-old boy, whom he is going to bring to maturity. Not only did my father send his son to rescue me from sin and death, but my father's also sent his Holy Spirit to abide in me, to take up permanent residence in me and to transform me and to keep on transforming me, often little by little it seems, from what I have been in the very likeness of his beloved son, the Son who lived among men as the radiance of the glory of God and the expressed imprint of His nature. Hebrews 1.3 The one and the only eternal Son of God, God's very Word, who became flesh and dwelt among us. We've seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth, says John 1.14. God's Word came to me that day it was like a personal promise that he will finish what he started in me when I first became aware of being drawn to him when I was four years old. Well, that prayer time didn't fix everything. Problems were still there. I was still me, with my weaknesses and propensities to failure, compounded by habitually not controlling my temper for several years. Yet I was different at the same time. From that time, I have more easily been able to choose to turn away from disappointments and disillusionments when such feelings and thoughts arise, and to turn with hope and trust to the Father's good plans for me. Instead of surrendering to bad habits I had developed over time by lack of self-control, I'm now able to catch myself more frequently and to choose to look to the Spirit of grace seeking for His help to build new habits of good responses. The biggest change, though, was that there was substantial healing in the deep places, where shame and a sense of never being able to be good enough had been dominating my feelings. It had been about ten years before that the Father had said to me, look to me for understanding and acceptance. Now I knew more fully that I really could look to Him and that He really did understand and accept me. My father likes me. And so ends chapter 21. But the fruit of that encounter with God has continued to grow in my life. Jesus' prayer in John 17, his high priestly prayer, is often called, is the last thing that John's gospel records before Jesus' betrayal and arrest. That prayer begins, Father, the hour has come. 
Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life, eternal life, summed up in knowing the Father and the Son Jesus. If there anyone happens to be listening to me reading today, it's not hard. Call out, Father, Father, because of your Son Jesus, accept me into your family. Forgive me and make me new. I pray that the Holy Spirit will increasingly reveal the Father's great love and the Son's great grace to each of you.